uh, which we were talking leading up into this, that the rumor today is that uh, MLB is at least talking about a hundred game season starting in July and postseason. And is, is there, I mean, other than kind of giving fans an idea that baseball will still exist at some point, is there any tangible reason to actually discuss that baseball might be played? Um, I mean, yeah, I think people need some engagement. Um, I mean, like even for some reason, the first thing that popped into my head was just thinking about how fan graphs is really struggling right now, which I realized they're not the ones that would put that out, but baseball in general is looking for reasons to keep people engaged because it's really hard if people think there isn't going to be a season to give people a reason to care. Um, I know we talked about this earlier. I do think there will probably be a season. I'm not sure it'll be a season with fans, but I think, you know, they, they started, I feel like two weeks ago, they were saying, oh, there's going to be a 162 game season whenever we start it. And they just keep scaling back. So I anticipate that that hundred game mark isn't going to be a thing either, <laughs> but I can see why they would do it. Yeah. I hundred. I mean, it sounds like a nice round number and a nice big round number still. So it's, I, I guess thrown up for comfort, if nothing else. And uh, it, it, it feels kind of weird to kind of talk about it, given, you know, the hellscape in which we currently live. But there's something to me that's kind of fascinating about if this season starts the way that they're projecting it would, where whenever we get baseball, assuming we do get baseball, it's going to be sprint baseball, which we've never really seen in our lives before. And I'm kind of curious to see how that's going to affect how you approach the season. Yeah, well, and, and if you remember, I don't know how big of a hockey fan you are, Ken, but... Oh, um, I dig hockey, yeah. Yeah, so I, well, then you probably know what I'm going to say, that strike shortened Blackhawks season. That was like, and I'm not nearly as big of a hockey person as I am baseball, but that strike shortened Blackhawks season was like crazy fun. Yes, um, because they won because every day. Yes. Yeah, it, well, the, every game meant so much. Like, and hockey is already, you know, it's a long sport in itself. So to get it shortened as much as it was, every game mattered. The season was a sprint. So, like, there's something that's appealing about having that happen to baseball. Like, the season that would happen would be, like, crazy fun. Every game, like, finally the way I react to the Cubs losing could be, <laughs> like, being, it would be closer to being justified. Like losing a single game would actually be a huge deal. Our, our mental illness would be proportional, actually, for, for once in our lives, finally. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it would be proportional, but it would be closer to being proportional. <laughs> closer, to, closer to a reasonable reaction, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and other people would still, would still think it's crazy, but it would be right. less crazy. Yeah, and it would also, you'd still have players insisting that you know, after one loss, uh, reacting with, you know, maximum rage is still crazy. And then for once, we'd be able to push back. And no, actually, it's not because you don't have April or May or June anymore. You get, you just kind of got to go. Uh, yeah. Like that, that time where I yelled fucking Christ in front of my grandmother. It's actually kind of legit now. Or like if we're getting, I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll have a 50 game season. Then you're barely at like 10 turns around the rotation. Like <laughs> Yeah, every single start matters. Yeah, that that's almost like gimmick baseball at that point, where where you're getting close to like playing out an NFL schedule in MLB terms. So you could legitimately have the Baltimore Orioles have their one hot streak of the year just come right out of the gate. Like like say you were like the 2003 Royals, for example, or even like even the 2001 Cubs, uh, who were fantastic until August because. Right. Sammy Soto was roiding out of his mind and hitting 64 home runs and nobody else was hitting, but they would have won the division in a hundred game season, I think. And uh, so I guess I support this is, is what I'm trying to say. Well, and I, you know, I was having this discussion with, um, with Brendan Miller from the, the Cubs related podcast. And like, we had this discussion of, does it hurt the Cubs or help the Cubs? If we have say, let's say an 81 game season, maybe. And I, if you think the Cubs are the best team in the division, which at, like through January and February, I sort of convinced myself that they are. I've sort of gotten on the hype train that, oh, the Cubs are the best team in the division. But so if the cream rises to the crop over 162 games, you would think the Cubs are going to win the division more times than not. And now with an 81 game season or whatever it's going to be. You know, the the Reds can win the division. If it's a 40-game season, maybe the Pirates win the division. <laughs> so, 
And then the uh, the teardown is justified in Pittsburgh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, it, from the way we're reasoning it out this way, it almost seems to me like in an 80 or 100 game season, like it feels like the Brewers would figure out a way to game that somehow with with the way Council uses the bullpen. Uh, I, I don't know if that's actually the case, but it just kind of it has that vibe to me of who might have the advantage. I mean, I think that I think that intuitively makes sense. I also think the Brewers would find their way into the playoffs in like a 700 game season. They're just going <laughs> to find a way to luck their way in, no matter yeah. how bad the team is, no matter what the circumstances are. Yeah. Because no matter how many games or how many months the season is, it still incorporates September, and we know they just don't lose anymore in September, which is right. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. If they win all 30 games in a month, they're still going to be in good shape, no matter what. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when when all thirty out of fifty, yeah, that that'll be how it, it'll work too. Is yeah, we'll get two months and they'll they'll just say, okay, we'll play our regular September, and there we go. And right. <laughs> a virulent racist being the MVP of the playoffs, as per usual. So, oh well, god, it probably so, wouldn't be the first time. I'm sure. No, oh god. I mean, when you've got like you know Ty Cobb's and Rogers Hornsby's of the world, yeah, it's a 1926 World Series star was one of the most virulent racists in baseball history. But yeah, I, yeah, for another podcast, I think. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I guess we'll open this one on that note of virulent racism. Why not? There's <laughs> why, what else? Yeah, uh, this is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, the Outsports Baseball podcast, which insists. That somehow we're still going to kind of talk about baseball in this weird hellscape time that we're in. Uh, this is part of the Outsports Podcast Network. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer for Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den. This is episode number 21, the Roberto Clemente episode. Or if you're any Cubs executive, it would be the Junior Lake or the Jason Marquis or the Steven Souza Jr. And certainly not anybody else that we can think of episode. <laughs> the other voice. I, I don't know who you're talking about, Ken. No, 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 I, I, I'm not implying that there's anybody else that, that could enter the picture at this point that would be related to that number. But, uh, the other voice you are hearing, though, is, is someone who is certainly entering the picture right now. Uh, a contributing writer for Cubs Insider and my brother in hashtag Cubs Gay Twitter, Ryan Tomir, has joined us here. Ryan can be found on Twitter at Ryan Tomir, T H O M U R E. And he tweets daily about our favorite team, even in this environment that we're in. Ryan, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ken. I just want to note that we're on video. I realize the podcast won't be, and I did do a fist pump for <laughs> Twitter, but no one else saw that. But I just want everybody to know. I, I can hear the fist pump in your voice, sir, and that's all we need. <laughs> Good. So I, I, I guess jumping off of our, our number here, I'll, I'll just ask, uh, what is your thought on the whole Sammy shunned for the better part of 15 years at this point with the Cubs? Oh, um, I mean, I, I, I think I'm where I we haven't explicitly talked about this, but I suspect I'm where you are, that it's time to, to bring him back. Um, uh, I'm in agreement, probably not for the reason most people are. But, yeah, go, uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm curious to hear your reason. I mean, my, so 2001 was kind of my first season as a big Cubs fan. So that was obviously one of Sammy's best seasons. And then I yep. got to see a few more productive seasons. But I, I missed you know, a lot of what made Sammy great. I missed the home run chase. I missed the late nineties. Um, but for me, like, regardless of what happened, enough time has passed. Like, I don't think he, he didn't do anything to me that is like so ethically egregious that he needs to be kept out forever. Was it, was it ethically, was it questionable? Was it immoral? Yes. But also everybody else was doing it. And frankly, like, there's a lot worse things a person can do than than take steroids when everybody else is doing that. I realized there was the corked bat incident and the walking out on a team incident, but to me, enough time has passed that it's it's time to forgive and bring back someone who is, you know, a, a gigant, gigantic part of this franchise. But I, I what's what's your non traditional reason? So my my thought on this, uh, and we, we arrive at the same place. I am not a huge Sammy fan. That uh, I certainly in the era in from 98 through 2003, 2004 was definitely there, was cheering for every walk off homer, every Sammy leap out of the box. You know, I, I totally bought in to the great home run chase in 98 uh, because that was one of the first times to or just felt good to be a baseball fan after the strike. And after a couple of years of people just kind of looking at you weird when you said that you liked baseball. Uh, so that part is definitely a memory of mine. Yeah, since 
we found out what was really going on in terms of everybody roiding out of their minds. You know, I, I look back at that era as just kind of one gigantic statistical fraud. And it, it's partly, I'm partly mad at myself for not being more skeptical of it when it happened. Uh, and like when they found Andrew Dion in McGuire's locker, not kind of asking more questions about what the deal with that was. Right. So I, I don't approach it from the idea that Sammy was my guy. Cause he, even when I was cheering him, he never was. I mean, I'm a Sandberg guy. I'm a Dawson guy. Uh, I was a Kerry Wood guy, much more than a Sammy guy in, in his heyday. Um, but I look at it now in terms of just kind of whenever Sammy shows up in the public, whether he like calls an athletic reporter out of the blue to thank him for voting for him in the Hall of Fame, or you see the stories of like Sammy showing up with this bizarre, almost translucent skin now. Um, yeah. And I just look at that and I think Sammy kind of needs a win. I, I, I feel kind of awful for him at this point, honestly, because this is someone who got used to living in the adulation of the public and, and really kind of dug being a public figure and kind of had this ripped away from him because baseball owners, after turning a blind eye and kind of implicitly saying, yeah, go ahead, do what you want, hit all the home runs because this is popular. Once, once we, it became known that everybody was doing steroids, they decided to suddenly become the morality police. And, you know, I, I hate the owners much more than the players in, in all instances, and certainly in this case, too. And so I look at this as kind of Sammy had a, an important part of him ripped away by baseball ownership. And I just feel like it would be it's just, it just from a human standpoint, I think it would be really great to just have him back at Wrigley, have him take a victory lap and just kind of bask in it and, and just experience the love again, for God's sake, which uh, I've, it, it's, it makes me feel like that this is uh, a, almost like a Hallmark Channel podcast at this point. But I, I, I think he needs it, you know? I, I, I did not expect to like be on this podcast and feel so, so much sadness for Sammy Sosa, but now I do. I've got another reason. Sammy needs a win, man. Yeah, uh, you know, but... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm a stand-up comic, so I'm supposed to not have feelings. But, you know, looking at Sammy, I kind of do. Hey, so. you know what? Whatever it takes to get them out, that's fine. But, no, I, mean, <laughs> I, I add that to my list of reasons. Like, I, I wouldn't say I'm a Sammy guy either. Like, frankly, above all else, like from early formative Cubs years, I'm a, I'm a Kerry Wood guy and I'm a Mark Pryor guy. Mm. Um, but – add that to my list of reasons for wanting to bring Sammy back too. I'm with you and I'm filled with sadness now. <laughs> Excellent. So that'll be good to talk about baseball in present day, really. What, what could be better than I'm filled with sadness? So, I mean, yeah, um, we're all filled with sadness right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, as long as we can be filled with sadness together, I think that's, that's the best we can hope for. We can't uh, though. We can't count. <laughs> <laughs> virtual, virtual. Six feet away. I'm for the screen right now. It's as to, to, to counter your fist pump with a touch the screen gesture right now. <laughs> uh, so I guess uh, on the subject of things that make you sad, uh, last Thursday was supposed to be opening day and yeah. it wasn't. And I know that you've been, you know, much closer or closer to the front of this with your job in occupational therapy. But uh, were you able on Thursday to like take a moment and realize we should have baseball today if this were not a hellscape? I mean, yeah, I've been, I don't know, I, I'm very much of the, I had a, an incredibly busy day at work on Thursday. I've been basically busy nonstop since uh, since all this has been going down, but I'm also like stronger. Really? What's believe. been happening? Sorry? Really? What's been happening? Oh, nothing. Just nothing. Wow. Nothing worth sharing. <laughs> Usual bullshit. Okay. Um, but I'm all like, even though obviously there's more serious stuff going on, I'm I'm strongly of the belief that it's it's okay to feel incredibly sad about the fact that baseball season was supposed to start last week and we don't have it, and that we were supposed to be at Wrigley Field this past Monday and we weren't. Um, there's bigger things in the world, but those are you know that's a big part of my life, that's a big part of your life, and a big part of a lot of people's lives. So. Like, I think it's, for me, it's devastating. I, I hate that there's no baseball. I hate that the day I get Mar I got Marquee Network is the day that they decide to, to suspend spring training. Like, it's just so mean and unfair. Um, I, and it makes it so much harder. He had his hand in that somehow. That, I that, bet, that, yeah. It's like, like a pretty move. <laughs> 
Uh, but like, it's okay to feel incredibly sad about that, even if it's not the most important thing. But I do. Like, I would, you know, there, we only have so many distractions right now, and I would love if baseball was one of them. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, you know, it, it feels like, and we have to almost preface every one of these discussions with, uh, you know, keeping it in perspective that if missing out on three months of baseball is the worst thing that happens to us, we are literally the luckiest people on the face of the earth. And totally. that's completely understood. But even within that, and I, I'm in a complete agreement with this, that baseball and opening day, opening day is my favorite day of just about every year that doesn't end with the Cubs winning the World Series. That right. It, it's the kind of thing where I wake up and it's, it's, have you ever seen the Mr. Bean Christmas episode? I can't say that I have. It, it is. <laughs> I, I can say yes if, you, if, if that's the answer you wanted, but I, I, I haven't. You can edit I, it into I, me I, saying yes. <laughs> either way, I'm, I'm going forward with this, with this reference. So uh, it, it is, there is a moment on it uh, where Mr. Bean wakes up on Christmas morning and Rowan Atkinson, who is an incredibly gifted physical comic, uh, it, watching, it, it's a minute of just pure, unfettered, spastic joy. Uh, where you leaping out of bed and just jumping side to side, almost like he's going downhill skiing, but he's just doing it in front of the, the stockings that are full on his chimney. And it, it, that is me on opening day. That, that mm-hmm. is the entire day. I am just on cloud nine. And, and, and this year, it, the fact that that would be, would be something I'd be looking forward to for months is now gone. It's just a natural thing to be sad because yeah. – your favorite thing in the world is not there. And being sad because of that is an okay reaction. I, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. Uh, were you able to do anything on opening day? Uh, you said you worked literally all day. But were you able to do anything baseball-related so, just to kind of get a little bit of the vibe? No. <laughs> no. no. I, 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 str- I strongly wish that I had, but uh, not really. It, if we're counting opening days last Thursday, no. If we're counting opening days Monday, I feel like I had more time to um, to reflect. I, I didn't. I wouldn't say I did anything baseball related, but um, you know, I, I certainly thought more about it than I did last Thursday. Um, but I will say one of the things that's been in my mind essentially for the last two three weeks is how amazing it's going to be that first game when they, when fans are back at the ballpark and Mm -hmm. how start to finish, how just amazing and electric that is going to be. Like, I'm so excited. It's going to be so special. I hope it's not in 2021, but whenever it is, it's going to be great. Yeah. As as long as we're still here when it happens, honestly, that'll, that'll be a good enough thing in and of itself at this point. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. That's going to be one of my things is, is definitely that, that first walk into Wrigley field, whenever that happens, uh, where I realize that, yeah, I am here, for my favorite thing. And I'm sure I'm going to be crying at some point in that before a game for the first time, maybe ever. Uh, usually it's at the end where the, where the tears flow at Wrigley. Uh, for better but, or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. But it will, yeah, it, it's just going to be the kind of thing where you, you look around, you, you kind of take in the sites that you, you never want to get used to it because you always want it to be cool when you walk into Wrigley and still have the, oh my God, I'm here and this is the best kind of thing. But it's going to be one of those those Kurt Vonnegut Jr. moments where the, the quotes that is kind of one of my my favorite Vonnegut quotes ever that's just kind of a great, great life quote in general uh, where he advises everybody that just as a good rule of life just to take occasional moments where when you're having a good moment, just to pause, take a second and think to yourself, if this, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. And that is going uh, to be so full of, like, it, the happy Vonnegut, which, uh, which I guess sums up kind of the, this moment better than anything else is that I'm turning to Vonnegut as a sense of optimism. Right. Well, and honestly, like, I, knew, I realize this is a baseball podcast, and I agree that it can be applied specifically to that, but it's so many things that we aren't able to do right now yeah. in this country. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. You know, the things we take for granted. And I, I think we're all going to have that moment, whether we're at Wrigley Field or a restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere that seems just impossible to get to right now. Like, yeah. this have is you, great. You, <laughs> outside of, just outside of the Cubs and baseball, have you planned out your first night out in your head yet? I have. I have too. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it, 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 sure. Is that a... It involves a, it involves a lot of wine, and I would say four very good friends. 
Awesome. Love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. How, how? What about you? Do you have yours planned out? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure who it would be with yet. Uh, I've got a couple people that are kind of nominated in my mind. But whatever it is, it's going to be a night where I get on the L for the first time. And I kind of lose it on there just because I'm actually on the L again. And this is this is how, what I've been reduced to in life. Uh, but I take it into downtown right around dusk. And uh, I do the Chicago Riverwalk as night is falling. That sounds and, great. <laughs> yeah. Just look around as everything lights up. And I, I, if I manage to just not collapse from the feelings I'm feeling, then I will be, I'll be surprised, honestly. Although I, I did not expect that your dream of returning to society, like the first thing on it would be the red line. But, yeah. you know, that, that, that doesn't sound so bad right now. Yeah. I, it, but I, I live, the red line is right next door to my building. And whenever I have to go out to go grocery shopping, uh, for a, I walk a couple blocks to the nearest Jewel. So occasionally you see the empty train going past. And over the past week, I've noticed that I just kind of stare at it forlornly and just kind of sigh and go, someday. So, yeah. That, yeah that's well, and I, I also live right near the Brown Line track. goes right by my house. And, yeah, right, we, I was just outside earlier uh, during rush hour. And yeah, every train that goes by, you can see that there's just no one in it. It's, it, it's a weird sight. Yeah. Good times. It really is. Yeah, the, the best, honestly. Uh, so, yeah, so I guess to, to take us back to what we were talking about, imagine how good baseball is going to feel if we are feeling nostalgic for the goddamn CTA. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I did want to share, too, how on my opening day, how I, I spent it, because I woke up in the morning and I, I usually turn the score, the Chicago, uh, the Cubs flagship station here in, in Chicago, just on as background noise in the morning to start writing. And I turned it on right away and then quickly realized that, oh, my God, yeah, this is opening day. And they should be doing like a live broadcast from the Cubby Bear or something like that. So that was my first kind yeah. of, uh, this is already going to be real tough to get through. And at a certain point, I realized that I just have to do something baseball-y today. Uh, so I kind of put writing to the side for the rest of the afternoon. And I went onto YouTube and just did a search for 1989 Cubs, who up until 2016 are my favorite Cub team of all time, the old boys of Zimmer, and found just a random Cubs game from mid-June. Of, of that year and against the Mets in old Shea stadium. Uh, so I popped it on and it was two and a half hours of watching Harry Carey and Steve stone. Uh, Ryan Sandberg makes an incredible play to start a double play in the first inning. Sean Dunstan hits a go ahead home run in the fifth. Uh, Andre Dawson sack fly gives them insurance and just kind of, it was yeah. Having the, all the feels for two and a half hours. And it, it certainly wasn't, you know, the, the kind of, opening day goodness that would be from watching, you know, actual baseball, but it was something that was needed for me that day. Uh, do, do you ever watch old games? Uh, well, when, and I, I think everybody's been watching, but I don't know if you have Marquee, Ken, and I realize we're not, we're not also lucky to have Marquee at this <laughs> point, um, but they've been doing the run. The, I think they're calling it the run to the championship where they've been playing a lot of games from 2016. And I realized saying 2016 playoff games is the answer to your question is kind of a cheap one, but mm -hmm. I have been watching some of those reruns. Um, cheap especially and like, and honestly, one that I rewatched was um, game five of the world series, which I was at, but I've never seen. I've never watched a replay mm -hmm. of game five. And uh, it, it reinforced my belief that it's the most stressful game that's ever happened. Like more yeah. than game seven, that game was just, oof. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, when, when you realize that uh, Aroldis Chapman, who neither of us like uh, necessarily, right. but he is our only hope and he has to go two and a third innings and there's nothing behind him if he loses command at this point. Yeah, that's that's scary as hell. And especially because he, it's not like he looked dominant for for all of those innings. Um, he certainly didn't. But. I, I'm I'm glad that they they got through. Obviously, I'm glad the Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that turned out okay in the end. So yeah, yeah, it was fine. Yeah, that was that was one of the better things to have happened in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, I think given the the events of the world in general, that I'm willing to say, yeah, I'll put that at number one. Let let's let's just go and be bold. Why not? That's a hot take. Cubs winning the yeah. World Series, best thing of the past four years. I, I'm I, I don't think I would put up an argument. 
<laughs> and thank you for that. Uh, so looking at it again, let's let's just go on to this topic for a second. Uh, how how great is John Lester watching that again? Uh, just at, at a moment where they needed somebody to be in command because nobody at that point had any sense that that the team that we thought we saw was going to show up again. And he was nails for six innings. Well, I mean, that game, that whole run, every, I mean, basically every game that he's been in the playoffs, like, I mean, not that you asked about this, but the, I mean, obviously the projections for John Lester this year, if there is a this year or not, terrific. There's a lot of doom and gloom about how he'll do this year. He was, I would say, okay is a fair description of his performance last year, but I, I assume I speak for you when I say that I don't really care. Like, I think he's going to be serviceable and fine. And if he's bad, you know, there's nothing. John Lester can do no wrong. He yeah. could do absolutely nothing to to damage his legacy as far as I'm concerned. Not he's, at all. Yeah. He uh, is. I mean, I, I am pretty much with, is it, I forget if it's Sahadev or Patrick Mooney on The Athletic who calls it the greatest signing in Chicago sports history. But yeah, I'm on board. I mean, I feel like I've heard so many people say that at this point. I mean, it yeah. just seems so. I feel like it's always him and Mary and Hosa that are talked about together. Yeah. As, yeah. you know, and it's, it's I, one or the other. I would throw in uh, Ben Zobrist as an underrated greatest signing too. Probably not the same year-to-year impact that Lester had, but just in terms of the guy that they needed most to turn the 2015 Cubs into the 2016 Cubs, and also the damn World Series MVP. Yeah, I, I think that that's that turned out to be a good choice in, in the uh, long run. A thousand percent. I was just thinking of Zobras too. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I still remember kind of talking about the signing of Lester. The, the day it happened, um, my friends, uh, Kevin McCaffrey, Adam Mamawala of the Away Games podcast, who were the guests last week on this, this particular podcast, the day it happened, I think Adam was at the in San Diego and was kind of hanging around the winter meetings. And I we have a endless text message on Facebook of just Cubs related chat. And I just went on and typed out this day is better than Christmas. (laughs) And it's one of the few Cubs free agent signings where I think I was understating the matter, honestly, because that, I mean, lived up to it and so much more. Well, and it also just sent that signal that these, you know, I'm I'm trying to, I'm going to say something kind of corny, but happy times are here again. Like we're finally going to, even if even if 2015 isn't the year, and it almost certainly won't be, which it, it, it was. I mean, it was obviously mm-hmm. a fantastic year. But yeah. it was a signal that, like, we are coming out of the tunnel. Um, yes. we're, yeah. we're going for it. And maybe this year won't be the year, but we've got Joe Madden now. We've got John Lester now. And that was just the signal that – because, I, I mean, a lot of people disengaged over those years, and I can't blame them. Um, I think it was the signal for everybody to come back. <laughs> we're going to have something worth watching. Right. And Which uh, is true. yeah. And I remember in the years in the rebuilding wilderness, uh, one of the off seasons, I want to say it was the 2014 off season where I, I was living in New York at the time. And I got just a random telemarketer call in like mid to late January or early February. And it was the Cubs and it was the Cubs representative saying, Hey, we know we saw you bought like six tickets last year. We really want to have you back. Uh, can I take your order for anything right now? And when have the Cubs ever had to do that in your life other yeah. than at the very bottom of the rebuild? And I remember telling the representative, like, uh, look, I'm living in New York right now, so I can't plan out games in advance. But I want to assure you, I support what you're doing. I'm on board with the rebuild, and I will be coming to games. I just can't give you orders right now. And right. I don't know what they thought of that. But, uh, but yeah. I, that, that that seared into my mind of, of kind of how how low and how desperate it became for the organization for a while. And, and Lester, as you say, was the endpoint of that. And and uh, they obviously since have never had to resort to, resort to anything like that. Uh, and I, I hope that remains the case. I know because, I mean, obviously, to an extent, I think enthusiasm plateaued and is now on its way down with um, some uneventful off seasons and, and some lackluster I don't want to call 2018 lackluster because it really wasn't, but some a disappointing ending and a disappointing season uh, mm-hmm. in 2018 and 2019. It, uh, it seems like the level of enthusiasm in general has certainly gone down. Yeah. If, if you look at it in terms of just kind of how it feels as like an overall pattern, 
Uh, just the past couple of years have made it feel like, yeah, we are kind of on the, the downward slope of the decline from the high of 2015, 16, and 17. Uh, and yeah, I, I think it's it's a natural thing, honestly, to have enthusiasm wane, especially when all the talk right now, at least in terms of baseball moves, is about uh, getting under the luxury tax and hearing that the rickets have to get under that in order to spend more money again. Uh, and I kind of wanted to, to bring this up with you too, in terms, just in terms of that. Uh, and this is my favorite, my favorite thing on a baseball podcast, of course, is making semantic distinctions. But this is one that I, I really think is kind of crucial in terms of how we talk about the Cubs and their approach to the luxury tax threshold. Because you see a lot, and a, and a lot of uh, really great blogs, certainly on Cubs Insider or on Bleacher Nation, you see uh, people talking about the Cubs have to get under the luxury tax this year because you don't want to go over three times because then you get the extra penalties, you lose draft picks, and then they lose profits for some reason because baseball finances are fucked up in some way that they don't get a share of some kind of profits. Sure. And I get where you're going with the reasoning for that, but I really think we need to change the way that we refer to this because the Cubs don't actually have to get under anything. It's there. There is not a rule. There is not a hard and fast salary cap that says the Cubs have to be under such and such. I think we always have to refer to this as the Cubs are choosing to get under the luxury tax. It is a choice. This is something that the Ricketts are making and this is all them. This is not anything outside of their decision that they're not going to be putting forth a payroll any, worth any more than like $210 million. Cause I think we really need to focus that this is, this is on them. This is not on a baseball rule. This is not uh, on any way the system is set up. This is on the Ricketts themselves. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to an extent that's certainly true. Um, I, I don't disagree with you there. I mean, the, the, I'm thankful. I'm hopeful that the the next CBA is not going to have these kinds of pretty onerous penalties for for spending to win. Because I think that should be the objective of every ownership group. And well, I recognize that the the Ricketts, you know, they are making a choice. Um, thinking about it from Theo Epstein's perspective and working with the budget that he's been given, I can understand the front offices reason for wanting to get under the luxury tax because as much as we would like the Ricketts to open up their pocketbooks because they can certainly afford to you know the front office has to operate under the assumption that you know the the fact that they're not going to and I don't like that and I'm sure they don't like that Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time the biggest frustrating point of this offseason for me is that if they're not spending money because their number one goal is to get under the luxury tax to avoid those third consecutive year penalties, it's really frustrating that they weren't able to do it because I, I, well, I'm with you that it's a choice they're making and a choice they don't like. They've also shown that they will spend when they're under. So I'm not someone who doesn't believe that if they get under that they would spend again. I think they would. I, I, I believe that. And maybe I'm naive. So it's frustrating to me that they weren't able to do it because there were so many there's so many paths to it. And now basically, even if there's a shortened season, it's hard to imagine how they're going to, what move they could make to get under at this point um, with everything in flux. Like I'm, I'm confident you would love to trade Jose Quintana. I think that (laughs) I'm not subtle. Nope. I mean, it, it, there's just so many paths forward you could have taken. If if all you're looking to do is dump salary, and that's if that's the plan you're going to do, I may not like it. But the fact that they didn't execute on it is the part that's the most maddening to me. Um, I mean, it's all maddening, like you said. <laughs> yeah, it, it's all awful. My, yeah, and my frustration with Theo is is kind of similar to that in that I'm upset that they didn't really go to a plan B when it was clear that the Chris Bryant – uh, salary arbitration dispute was going to stretch out into the new year. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it hadn't, uh, I think plan A is horseshit anyway. That uh, I've been beating the drum all winter long. There, there is no such thing as a good return for Chris Bryant. And I, I still fully believe that with every ounce of me. And you look at, you just look at what the Red Sox got for Mookie Betts, who granted is a better player, but the fact that, that the best thing they got is Alex Verdugo in that deal. That really? That in, in what world other than a salary dump does that move not get you fired? Uh, yeah. And I, I can't imagine then if, if that's what you're getting for Mookie Betts when everybody knows you're trying to dump his salary, what 
awful dreck that teams were offering for Chris Bryant. And once you're getting that offered to you in return, how do you not pivot to at least an idea of, well, if we're dumping salary and going to get a mediocre return, why don't we just get rid of a much more mediocre player than Chris Bryant, who happens to be Jose Quintana? Hey, what do you know? Yeah, I mean, there were options. Like, I don't think they could. I think they could. They they certainly could have shed Quintana's entire salary. I don't think they would have gotten much back, but mm-hmm. they could have shed the entire salary. They could have eaten a portion of Chatwood's contract. They could have aggressively tried to deal Jason Hayward um, by eating a large portion of his contract. Yeah, I, I this may be controversial, but I think trading the arguably the best player on the team is usually not the best path forward. <laughs> Yeah, when, when you're trying to continue winning division titles and pennants and stuff, you usually want to keep your top war player around. That's right. The, well, and that's the thing. If, if they want to do the the 2016 Yankees soft rebuild, I don't – I can be talked into that if they've got a plan for it. But the Yankees didn't do that by trading you know, their absolute best player, which I would argue Chris Bryant is. Like mm-hmm. He's the one you build around. You yes. trade off the supplementary pieces to build around the, your Chris Bryant's and your Anthony Rizzo's and your hobbies. Right. Yeah, it, it really, and even from just a pure emotional standpoint, after the after 2016, all I all that I really would want them to do is just make sure that Rizzo, Bryant, and Hobby are Cubs for as long as possible and just keep taking shots with that group. Because that's that's the special group there. And I want to see mm-hmm. them continue to try to see if you can get another ring with those guys. And even if you don't, they're still, you know, the most legendary Cubs of my lifetime as well. They should be. Well, and frankly, competitive baseball is fun. And that's why, that's why I I refuse to kind of throw 2018 out and just say it was an unsuccessful season because they won 95 games. And I'm not going to like, that's something I would be as a Cubs fan. How many times have we gotten to see that? Yeah. So I refuse to just throw that season out as unsuccessful because the Brewers had their insane run and we got, you know, they just got unlucky. Um, yeah. Complete agreement. I love, I love competitive seasons. I'll take as many of them as they will give. I hope World Series come along the way too, but we've, we've got one. And frankly, that's, you know, I'm not going to say it's enough for me, but I'm, you know, I, I'm okay with competitive seasons. There's, there's endings besides a World Series championship that are not a failure. Right. I, I'm, I'm going to throw out another hot take right at you here uh, off of the le- less steaming one uh, that, yeah, it, you usually don't win the World Series every year, even with a good team. And that's something that, you know, a lot of fans are, get upset about. But that's just the way sports work when you have 30 teams of which there are, especially in the era of super teams that we're in right now. The, the fact that you go, get through and win any team, win any World Series in an era where you're dealing with the cheating Astros or the resurgent Yankees or the cheating Red Sox or the Dodgers who destroy every year. The fact that you were able to get through once is already, you know, you are now in the bonus round for this particular era. And uh, to to your point about 2018 too, not only was it a 95 win season, it was also a team that up until maybe late August or even into September was a fun team to watch i mean yeah you had a team that was giving you the david Bodie walk-off grand slam you had the game against the diamondbacks where Bodie tied it with the home run and then rizzo back to back to walk him off you had the jason hayward walk-off grand slam it it was you had thrilling wins throughout the entire year this was a team that came back in so many games and was probably unsustainable over the course of 162 but it was still one that was a fun adventure to watch Kind of for me, up until the point where they where they traded for Daniel Murphy, and then I had to deal with the fact that uh, the Cubs were now fielding a player who hates my very existence. So yeah, yeah, that that wasn't my favorite. I, I'm with you on all the rest of it, all the rest of the stuff about the 2018 Cubs. I'm happy to make this this like the let's re, let's resurrect the the reputation of the 2018 Cubs podcast. Um, but yeah, I mean Daniel Murphy certainly leaves a sour taste in my mouth about that team. I mean, a, a lot of stuff leaves a sour taste in my mouth about that team, despite all the good stuff I just said. But yeah, I mean, it, it, the Daniel Murphy move, it, it hurt my feelings. There's no other better way to say it than that. It's sort yeah. of simplistic, but it, it did. It hurt my feelings. Do you remember uh, where you were and kind of your immediate reaction when you heard that the deal had actually gone through and they brought him in? I do. I remember I was at work and a coworker of mine was, who was also a big Cubs fan, but probably just a little less aware of some of those 
peripheral issues was mm-hmm. just ecstatic. Yeah. Uh, and not not someone I know well enough to to really get into the whole, well, this is why he's actually bad thing. So it was it was this sort of awkward moment because he was so excited and he thought I would be excited and I was not excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember that for me, I was uh, in the city for the day uh, having lunch with a friend and I remember my phone going off in my pocket. I didn't I didn't check it at the time. And after I finished lunch and was kind of walking over to the Art Institute to spend the afternoon, I checked the text and I saw that, oh, Jesus, yeah, they have made the deal and here he comes. And I kind of just like my the good mood that I was in, just kind of having a good day in downtown Chicago, I just kind of had to pull off to the side and just like take a minute to just just hate the world for a second. And uh, like I, I jumped onto my text chain again with Kevin and Adam and it was just a nonstop of you've got to be fucking kidding me. What what just a nonstop parade of f bombs at Theo at the Ricketts, wondering what the fuck Laura Ricketts responded response to it was. Uh, and I I continued on to the Art Institute and spent like a couple hours there. But the entire time I was walking through, like my mind was just like one thing to be angry about after another. That it was one thing when you made us endure Chapman to win a world series. Now you got that. Now do we have to sell our souls for a homophobe? Like, is the, is this now the new, the new normal? Like uh, it, it, yeah, it, it galled me. And, and I went home that night uh, and instead of watching the game, I just pulled out, uh, uh, went onto my word processor and typed out a couple pages worth of an essay, sent it to BP Wrigleyville, RIP, but, uh, yeah, and got it, got it published the next day, and it was just like these are my feelings. This is I I am puzzled, hurt, and mad, and I just kind of had to get it out. And uh, and oddly enough, that is the essay that I think got me my job at Outsports because that's what I sent in for my application. But uh, but yeah, it was it was just a day of of just sudden total negativity that that I just couldn't work out of my mind for for the better parts of at least a few days after that. Well, and I know, and I think I had pretty similar feelings too. I'm glad you got the job as a result of that. That's, <laughs> at least something good came out of it. But I, I did eventually get my, I was never happy about it, obviously. But I, I think I at least got to a point where, well, like, I hate this, but he better fucking hit. Like, he better <laughs> at least do something good on the field. And I think there was like a two and a half week stretch where that was true. And then that stopped as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he gave them what they wanted. I want to say from about late August until about mid-September, he was, it, it seems like he's someone that when his BABIP is hot, then he is almost impossible to get out. Uh, but when he's not hitting him into holes, then you just get a whole bunch of weak ground balls everywhere. And, uh, and that was toward the end of the year. And it's hard to, like, I'm not sure that, I'm certain I haven't seen one since, but I don't know if I've ever seen a worse defensive second baseman oh, than Daniel Murphy. It's just, it was just, it was a sight to behold. Yeah, I remember, uh, another thing I remember Thursday was like one of the first days after they got him, uh, I was in the car with my parents on the way to my grandma's house. And uh, I remember Pat Hughes describing something as, it was a great play by Daniel Murphy, a great diving play. And I'm still just, angry at the world and I, I think I said something like a great diving play by Downey Murphy is a play made standing up by 90% of all second basemen absolutely and I, I think my dad said oh what are you doing Kenneth and I, I, I think I snapped at him for a second I, I yelled at my dad because of Daniel Murphy so that that's yeah that's what I was reduced to I, I'm sorry that Daniel Murphy can you know hurt your relationship with your father <laughs> <laughs> you're tearing apart my family Daniel Murphy I'm going into Tommy Weasel mode here you're telling I was just me about Daniel Murphy. <laughs> uh, God. Uh, so I, I guess uh, jumping off of that subject. Uh, so the first time we encountered each other was actually kind of in response to the essay you published on Cubs Insider uh, uh, in relation to Pride Day of last year. It was kind of your uh, was, was that the first time that you had written about being a gay baseball fan for public consumption like that? Um. Yeah, it must have been because most of most of what I've done for yeah yeah I mean it, it certainly is um, outside of you know tweeting I mean which is technically writing but mm-hmm. a, a longer I, I guess I would call that like a medium form piece um, yeah that's certainly the first and, and probably only time that I've really written in that way like 
for most of what I've written about for Cubs Insider, with just a couple exceptions, is very, very much straight baseball and mm-hmm. straight, very much nothing but baseball is a is a is a more clear way to phrase that. Yeah. Um, but something I'm not sure exactly what it is, but something just inspired me to to write about that is someone who frankly there's there's a lot of talk on twitter about how things like pride nights are corporate cash grabs and Mm -hmm. useless fake shows of solidarity which to some extent is certainly true but like i totally reject the idea that it doesn't make a difference for some people um because i identify as someone who when i was a kid it would have made a huge difference for me yeah um so to me that that piece was kind of a reaction to that and talking about like for some people that could be the only day this is maybe less true in Chicago than some other places, but for some people that's going to be the only day where they'll feel safe and comfortable going to the ballpark as sort of as their authentic selves, whether that's a sort of a trans person presenting openly or, you know, a same sex couple expressing themselves openly. Um, for some people that's going to be it. So yeah, it, it was a, it was a fun piece to write. Yeah. And it, it's, first of all, I had two responses to it. The first was, this is great. Uh, I, it really well done. Uh, Thank and you. Then the, yeah, you're welcome. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. And I'll put a link to it on the uh, description for this episode too. Oh, great. Uh, hopefully whatever audience I have can hopefully get directed to it. Yeah. <laughs> definitely worth everybody's time. And uh, the second response that I had to it was, Oh my God, there's another, that's great. Uh, right, yeah. Yeah. There's dozens of us. Yes, it turns out. Uh, but even among like Cubs blogger nation or whatever, it was just really nice to see that yeah, someone else who would kind of would would just kind of get this. Uh, and I, I was thrilled uh, to to see to see you have to write that. Uh, and to your point about uh, the greater importance of Pride Nights, especially in certain parts of the country, and this is something that I touched on, I think, in an Outsports piece a little bit last year when we wrote about the Cardinals scheduling a Pride Night. Uh, when I went down for a terrible Cubs Cardinal series back, the one where they got swept in uh, late May, early June of last year, but I yeah. remember walking around Bush Stadium just kind of it was the first time I'd been to the the latest incarnation of Bush. So we were just kind of doing a walking tour, and in one of their gift shops, I saw it. It wasn't even close to when St. Louis Pride is. It was it was the first week of June, uh, last week of May. But they just had kind of on on display, not calling attention to it, but there are a whole bunch of Cardinals Pride t- uh, rainbow T-shirts. And I looked at that and thought, this is St. Louis, where, I mean, you and I both, I'm sure, follow uh, Best Fans St. Louis on Twitter. So we know what the dark side of Cardinal fans is. Uh, and we see how a lot of Cardinal fans treat the community. But just to see the Cardinals not bothering to hide that, but but just putting it out there for any LGBTQ fan who happened to see it and wanted to buy it in the middle of May, I thought, good on you, St. Louis. I mean, that's great. Yeah. And how many times do you think good on you, St. Louis, just in general? Literally never. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I mean, you're right. That's, that's great. And like, rather or not, they're doing that to sell t-shirts to fans and make more money. I'm glad we live in a time where that's, I'm glad we live in a time where that's something that's going to make them money as opposed to get them driven out of business. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, that's something that as a kid, especially in like junior high, I could have, boy, I could have used something like that. It's some kind of reinforcement for whatever I was going through and trying to deny that was in myself at the time. Uh, just to see that my favorite thing in the world supported the LGBT community, community like that. Uh, it would have made, nope. I, I think, a huge difference to a 12-year-old me who wasn't concerned about, you know, the corporate corporatization of the movement or whatever. Uh, right. I, I think you just said it better than I could. But, like, that's the thing. Like, rather we as, you know, people our age and our situations recognize that, you know, you can be cynical about just about anything that happens in the world. But that it doesn't. it's not a more sophisticated way to look at the world, to be cynical about everything. Like, yes, it is a cash grab. Yes. Also it can make a difference for people and it's okay to choose to focus on the second part of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and also to see uh, modern players, especially ones who have a platform like Sean Doolittle, who is so vocal in his support and his wife, Erin Dolan, uh, not just in term, not just vocal, but they, they walk the walk in terms of supports. Like, 
when they bought and distributed tickets for Oakland A's Pride Nights to, uh, was it homeless LGBTQ youth or something like that? But, uh, but to see players who are that, that openly supportive is, is something that, I mean, growing up in the 90s, I never would have thought baseball would be that open up to the community and, and is also something that, that shatters cynicism when you see players do that. Right. I mean, and, and talk about if the Cubs were to acquire Sean Doolittle, that would be like the anti-Daniel Murphy. I would feel yeah. all the opposite feelings just as strongly. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I was secretly hoping in 2016 when the Chapman rumors were about that I, I was kind of thinking, you know, if Sean Doolittle is also playing for a team that's out of it and could be had. And boy, I'd rather watch him and cheer for him than, than, than a uh, uh, yeah. You're not kidding. Yeah, if like if Sean Doolittle is acquired by the Cubs, I I might well just buy a jersey, honestly, because uh, well, and he's got to be one of the very few baseball players who doesn't play for a Chicago team that chooses to live in Chicago in the off season. Yeah. So you'd think he'd want to come here if the opportunity <laughs> was available. Yeah, uh, yeah. God, I wonder if it, is that because his wife is from Chicago? Is is Aaron uh, from the I, area? I don't know, actually. I, I, I know the anecdote that he lives here. I don't know any mm-hmm. of the circumstances beyond it, but that seems like a good guess. Yeah. And uh, Sean Doolittle also seems like the best way to transition into uh, our final uh, book club segment here, because you know, Sean's a book guy, so why not? Uh, do you have a book recommendation for our socially distancing listeners, Ryan? Are we, we're talking baseball books, right? Yeah, yes. Um, so I'm going to... There's a caveat with this one, obviously. I'm going to recommend the MVP machine. I've generally recommended the MVP machine to everybody who will listen. There are two big caveats with that. One is that it focuses very heavily on the Astros, and the shine mm-hmm. has certainly worn off the Astros to an extent. Uh, two is that it focuses very heavily on Trevor Bauer, and the shine was never on him in the first place, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, but to, you know, they've got to write a book about the people that will talk to them. And Trevor Bauer will never stop talking if you put a microphone in front of his face. Um, but that book is fantastic. And mm-hmm. the looks that it gives in, in a lot into the Astros, into some of the advanced parts of their player development, their analytics, the way they scout, the way they train, the way they the, the way they do essentially everything they do in terms of player analytics is like easily the best look it, into all of that that I've ever seen. And mm. as a Cubs fan, it, it sort of makes you feel bad because if that book was written in 2015, you would have expected that it would be about the Astros and the Cubs. And now mm. it's about the Astros and the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Cubs are hardly mentioned in it at all. Does they, they've fallen behind the curve in that. Um, but if you read it, you also get, excited about some of the things that the Cubs have done this past off season and trying to, for what they, for what they failed to do in terms of players, they brought in a lot of analytically savvy front office types, coaches all across all like top to bottom in the organization. And I'm of the belief that those kinds of things are going to make a huge difference. It should also come with acquiring good players. But if you read the MVP machine, I promise you will feel good at least about that part of the Cubs last offseason. Nice. Can I could I try to make you feel better by suggesting a subtitle for the MVP machine? What's that? The Telltale Trash Can. Oh God. <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. Uh, what well, and I, I like I'm not gonna deny that Trevor Bauer is an interesting person. He's just also an idiot. Um, oh yeah. He has he has some interesting things to say in the book as well, but I, I wish they would have you know, there's other players that I wish they would have given that platform to. I, I think with Trevor Bauer, that if you can somehow keep him just to baseball and kind of eliminate all the weird, socially odd right wing bullshit that, yeah, you probably can learn something because he does think pretty deeply and has a really good recall of how he approaches hitters. But yeah, you have to kind of, as, as soon as he changes the subject to literally anything else, just kind of say, and we're done. Yeah, well, and I will say the book does a pretty good job of that. It, you know, it, it it talks about the things that have gotten Trevor Bauer into trouble, which are the things that we dislike about him. Mm-hmm. But it it really focuses on the things that make him interesting as a baseball player, which is like undeniable. Like he, you know, there's very interesting things about the way he prepares and the way that he approaches the game. And you wish it wasn't paired with being a complete 
jerk to women mm-hmm. online, but yeah. it, that's what it is. Um, yeah. I, I wish they had found someone else for the book for that reason, but it's still a very interesting read. Yeah, he's like, if Dave Kingman knew how to use Twitter, I think that that's kind of Trevor Bauer's approach to Uh, But to your point about uh, how it affects the Cubs front office, too, and I think one of the the things about Theo that I like a lot, and one of his best qualities, actually, is that he knows when something has gone wrong that he's designed, and he's not driven by ego to the point where he just kind of tries to keep forcing it to happen, that he is always willing to pivot, and, and... it's one of the reasons why I, I think that they've always said the motto of the Cubs front office is we don't know shit because sometimes they don't. And it's, it's good that they're able to recognize when they actually don't know shit and other teams have surpassed them and to say, okay, what do we need to do to actually join up with the way baseball is played? Baseball is quote unquote played in 2020. Uh, and yeah, it, it's the, the one good thing of this entire offseason outside of probably hiring David Ross's manager was was every hire in the front office uh, with the idea of making it a modern front office again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, recognizing that they're behind is step number one. I mm-hmm. I wish that that would have come sooner. Or I wish that it wouldn't have had to come. But clearly, they have recognized that it it was time to try and catch up, and they're doing that. And yeah. but it's it's hard to play from behind. Yeah, um, it, it is. It is very hard to catch up, but. There are many instances where general managers either don't or won't recognize that. Do you remember Jim Hendry? Gosh, I do. Yep. <laughs> you like it when your general manager says, hey, would you just mind printing out the entire internet for me? Right. <laughs> uh, so the book that I'm going to recommend this week is uh, one of the greatest baseball autobiographies of all time. Uh, I am t- going to talk up Vec as in Wreck by Bill Vec, ghostwritten by Ed Lynn. Uh, you know Bill Veck, the uh, the Hall of Fame owner of the Indians, White Sox, and St. Louis Browns from the 40s and 50s into the 70s? I'm certainly familiar with him. Yeah, this is a book that got published, I want to say, uh, late 60s is when it came out, 62. And uh, it's the story of his his very, very rocky, very odd career of trying to buy a major league team revolutionize the sport and then pissing off literally every other single owner and getting kicked out of the game and just repeating it over and over and over again. Yeah. And it's just full of stories of the ways that he tried to make the game fun. And he is a, a great storyteller that it, the, the book begins with the, the saga of how he uh, sent Eddie Goodell, the famous three foot 11 little person to get in at bat in an actual major league game for the St. Louis Browns in 1951 and it, it's just an unreal story in, in terms of all the preparation that went into it between the thinking of, okay, we're going to sign into a major league deal, but we're going to contact the league office and let them know this contract happened on a Saturday night because the game is Sunday and they, they're closed on Sunday and won't reopen until Monday. So this is the way we'll sneak in the little person onto our, onto our major league roster. And we're going to have to put a carbon copy of this contract and give it to our manager because when he approaches the plate, the umpire is going to say, what the hell is this? So we're going to send the manager up with the contract in hand saying, yep, this is a guy who is on our roster. And it, it's just, it's full of stuff like that. And it, it, it is a joy to read because he just is, has a great fun way of relating the, these insane stories. Uh, there's another one in there. Uh, back when he was uh, like a front office person with the Cubs in his very early baseball days. Uh, and Phil Wrigley the Cubs' longtime terrible owner of the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, oversaw an, uh, an unprecedented series of horseshit teams. Phil Wrigley once called him into the office and said, hey, I have this great idea of how we're going to turn things around. I've hired this. I went to a wrestling match last night and saw a, a wrestling manager who put an evil eye hex on the opposing wrestler, and his guy won. So I've hired him to stand facing the other team's dugout and put the evil eye on them the entire game. And Bill Vec thought for a second and thought, okay, this is actually kind of, I can roll with this. We can, we can contact the papers. You know, this would be a fun little gimmick. Tell everybody the Cubs have the solution to all the years of losing. And it's our evil eye guy. And Phil Wrigley heard him talking about this and looked him in the eye and said, stop making fun of this. I've hired this guy to do a job. <laughs> Bill Wrigley 
was the kind of owner who made hirings because he thought pro wrestling was real. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The book is, I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. It is, it is a phenomenally fun read. And, and he also, Bill Veck just goes off on everybody, all of baseball's hierarchy at the time. Uh, Ford Frick, he sets on fire just in the book and uh, Yankees ownership, Del Webb, Yankee general manager, George Weiss. He, he spares nobody. It is a phenomenally fun read. So highly, highly recommend it. Uh, and speaking of fun reads, Ryan, do you have anything else to plug while you're still here? I have nothing to plug because I've had nothing to write about. <laughs> <laughs> but but I appreciate the opportunity to plug. But no, nothing right now. I, I am desperate for something to write about in the near future. I, I'm going to plug Staring into the Abyss. And that, that makes about as much sense as any. But... Uh, this, this uh, conversation has been anything but an abyss, my friend. How about that for a way to close out? Yeah, absolutely. This has been fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me, good sir. Thanks.